If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4. This is a great church growth strategy. Sing hymns and preach out of Ezekiel. This, is, this will bring them in in droves, right? But we want to, we're faithful to God's word, and we are landed in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 4. Um, we're going to read this chapter. It's a, it's been it's a little bit of a you know remember you don't get to get you don't get to choose where you get born into God's story right, and Ezekiel found himself born into a very difficult part of God's story, and we're going to be talking about that today. And Ezekiel is called to do some very strange things, and we're going to read about those today. So once you find that Ezekiel chapter four, beginning in verse one, if you would, in honor of God and His Word, let's stand together as we read this chapter and a little bit into chapter 5. So plant your feet. We're going to be up for just a little bit here. Ezekiel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And you, son of man, take a brick, lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, build a siege wall against it, cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days you shall lie on it, you shall bear the punishment for them. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long you shall bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side. And bear the punishment of the house of Israel. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you, so you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. And you take wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you'll eat it. And your food that you shall eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, a sixth part of a hen. From day to day you shall drink. And you shall eat as a barley cake, cake baking it on, in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. And I said, Lord, God, behold, I have never defiled myself from my youth up till now. I have never eaten what, what has died itself or till now, never eaten what, uh, what is torn by beasts nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight, and with anxiety they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this, but they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and beard, and take the balances for weighing and dividing the hair, 
A third part you shall burn with fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. A third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. A third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath my sword after them. And you shall take from these small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these, again, you shall take some and cast it in the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there, a fire will come out into the house of Israel. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. Well, buckle up. I mean, if you read, what the heck is going on? Ezekiel, we've been following Ezekiel, and we've been following Ezekiel. Ezekiel has been commissioned as a prophet. He was supposed to be trained as a priest, a reconciler, but God appointed him as a prophet, a disruptor. And he was not a reconciler, smoothing over things, a a prophet of of a hopeful message. He begins as a prophet, a watchman. Watchmen are prophets. They are sayers of doom. When you stand on a tower looking for an invading army to come, when you blow the trumpet, it's not a trumpet of rejoicing. It's a trumpet signaling doom. And Ezekiel was commissioned as a watchman of doom. And This was not the place that Ezekiel really wanted necessarily to be. It's not what he trained to be. He trained to be a reconciler. He did not train to be a prophet. And all that to say, even in the midst of that, God says, when you open your mouth, you've got, I I have to put the words into your mouth, but I'm going to make you mute. I'm going to make you quiet until I put something in your mouth, which leaves Ezekiel to a bit of street performance. And Ezekiel is going to, in these two chapters, do a number of synacts, parables, enacted parables that are going to communicate something to the people of God, the people of God in exile. And we find ourselves, really when we find ourselves in this, is we're finding ourselves in the middle of a story, not just in the middle of a story, and all stories kind of have these story arcs, right? There's up and downs. You guys have been binging Netflix, right, in the pandemic. None of you. It's just me. Don't worry about it. But every time, you know, we watch movies, you know that there's this kind of predictable arc. You know, a movie starts, it takes you to the bottom, and then you climb back up until the, the climactic end. But we all know that life is not always like that. Life goes like this. There's story arcs. And I don't know where you're at in your story right now. Maybe you're at a real high point in your story. Maybe you're ascending in your story. And those are really awesome days, aren't they? Like when you remember back in your life these ascending stories and, and, and times in your life where things are going up, but that's not always where we're at, is it? You read the Psalms and you realize that God is at work not only when we are at the top or ascending, but God is also active in our story when it's descending or even when we hit rock bottom. And the book of Ezekiel is rock bottom for the nation of Israel. And one of the things that we need to do in order to understand this story is just to walk back and to do a little refresher about where this is at because what we're going to read, as I was reading it this week, it is harsh. I mean, there are some nasty things that are going to happen to the people of God in this passage and in this book. And in order to understand that, we have to kind of take a little step back and we have to go back to the founding of the nation of Israel. And if you've read your Bible, you've been at church for most of your life or some of your life, you've probably heard a little bit of this, but just a little refresher course for us. The nation of Israel is enslaved in Egypt. God leads them by a hand of Moses and Moses' staff. It's not really Charlton Heston, but you can imagine whatever you want to, okay? And the staff, Moses with his staff, and there's all these wonders of God, but God leads them out 
of, is, of Egypt and through the Red Sea. Maybe, if you're, maybe some of you it's Charlton Heston. Maybe some of you it's Val Kilmer in The Prince of Egypt. Animated. All right, thank you, Lisa. Uh, good. Someone's here. Someone's listening. I appreciate you, Lisa. Okay, so whatever it is, however you're imagining this, they come to Mount Sinai, right? They come to Mount Sinai, and here's the interesting thing. God initiates communication with them. Israel is not seeking. They, they know that God is at work, but on at Mount Sinai, God tells Moses to come up, and he initiates conversation with them. He initiates this, and this is an important thing. In 19.3, that God initiates, in Exodus 19, he, God initiates an arrangement with the nation of Israel, an agreement with them, kind of a contract, something like a marriage agreement, maybe even an adoption agreement. In Hebrew, the word is berit. It's the word covenant, that God reaches out and he initiates an agreement, some kind of a of a diplomatic contract. And this is what he says in Exodus. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read this. Exodus 19. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God says, I brought you out of, of Egypt to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my berit, keep my covenant, keep my arrangement, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, holy nation. And then God says, Moses, tell the people these things. And then there's fire and smoke and clouds and thunder and lightning and whirlwind, kind of like what Ezekiel saw in chapter 1. And God says, God says, 10 things, right? And what are the first four? First one, no other gods. No other gods. And secondly, watch how you use my name. You better watch how you, and watch what you say in my name, what you do in my name, how you act in my name. If you're going to be my representative, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't use it for anything that I tell you not to use it for. So no other gods. No, don't take my name in vain. No, oh, I, I missed. That's no graven images. Don't even try to make an image of me. I'm way bigger than any of these images. So you got the first three, even the fourth one, my, the Sabbath, you need a day of rest and worship. The first four, look, if we're going to be in this agreement, then there's a couple things like, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to keep you, I'm going to make my face shine upon you, I'm going to be gracious to you, but there's a few things that I need from you. No other gods, no graven images. Watch how you use my name and worship. Take a day to worship. There's some other things. Honor your father and mother. Father and mother's out there. Don't murder. Don't commit. You get the idea, okay? And these are the general terms of the agreement, the contract, the berit, the covenant. And most scholars and teachers view what's happening on Mount Sinai in, in concert, kind of mirroring a practice of the ancient world, which is called um, a suzerain-vassal treaty, which is this, okay? Now, some of you have gone about conquering the known world, okay? How many in here have conquered the known world? Okay, no one, okay? Alexander the Great in the back, he can raise his hand, okay? If, but if you ever conquer the known world, one of the things that you'll do is you might go to these lesser kingdoms, and rather than let's spill a bunch of blood to conquer you, let's just make an agreement. I'm the greater, I'm the conqueror, you're the lesser, 
And what we're going to do is we're going to make, we're going to, we're going to strike a berit. We're going to strike a covenant. And there's going to be terms, like, if you obey the covenant, like, you can expect that I will protect you, I will give you resources, I will build for you, I will do all these things for you, but what you need to do is you need to honor me, you need to pay tribute to me. It's a, it's a, in the ancient world, it's what's called a suzerain vassal treaty. A greater king makes a treaty with a lesser people. And most people believe that what is happening on Mount Sinai is God, the greater king, the greatest king, the earth is his, is making a treaty, a covenant, with his people. I will protect you, I will keep you, I will be your shepherd. All I'm asking is a few things. No other gods, no graven images, don't take the Lord's name in vain, etc., etc. And there are times in this history that the nation of Israel is very diligent about this. And again, if you've grown up in church, you know, you know the stories. There are times when they have been diligent about this, and there are other times where they are not diligent about this. They do not keep the agreement, and God calls them, God calls them to reorient. You guys remember the word for reorient? It's to repent. Repenting is not just turning, making a 180. Sometimes when we get off track and we're not, we're, not aware, we're not really paying attention to what God has called us to, we can be a little bit off, but the call is to repent, to reorient, to turn. And what happens is they mess up, God calls them to repent, to reorient, and they do, and God is gracious. God is gracious, God is merciful. He forgives them, he bears with them, he is gracious. God is slow to anger, abounding in hesed, which is covenant love. He's abounding in covenant love. He loves them, and he will take their mistakes, call them to reorient, and forgive them. And when we read in the Old Testament, it's story after story of paying attention to God, falling away, coming back, God forgiving, God being gracious, God being merciful. What we find when we hit Ezekiel is we realize that there is a time when God's patience meets its end. That there's a cup that fills up and it fills up to a tipping point. And what we find in the book of Ezekiel is, is Israel has reached that tipping point. And this is where Ezekiel found himself. You don't get to choose where you're born into the story. Ezekiel is born into the story at the tipping point of God's anger. It's not that God's quick to anger, because if we just come to this story, then we think God is just quick to anger. Like we come to Ezekiel, God's angry every week. Pastor gets up, and every week he gets up, God's angry. Like that's not, that's not right? But we come to this, and we, we realize we're at a specific point in history where the, the anger, God's anger has been filled up and is now tipping over and we we're trying to imagine ourselves what would it be like to be in that moment to be with ezekiel in that moment and ezekiel has found himself in this spot where the words of leviticus 26 have been fulfilled i will devastate the land and i will scatter you among the nations and as ezekiel's there and as ezekiel is in his refugee camp there are many people who are probably like look Okay, we got taken captive. The Babylonians came and they took us captive and God might be angry with us, but God, Yahweh, Yahweh, slow to anger, abounding in love. At least we can hope that Jerusalem will stand. Jerusalem will stand and we'll be able to get back there in our lifetime. 
And that's what people are thinking because Ezekiel's a prophet and God is speaking. And so if God is speaking, then maybe Jerusalem will stand. Maybe we will make it Jerusalem will stand. And here we are, Ezekiel 4.1, to our passage. Son of man, take a brick, lay it before you, engrave on it, Jerusalem. A brick. This is about the size of what a brick would have been in the ancient world building for a brick. If you take two sheets of paper across, so it's somewhere about... uh, this, about this height. Now, I didn't want to bring a real brick because it's too heavy and I couldn't do this. I couldn't like hold it up in front of you, okay? But this is about the size of what a brick would be. Now, Ezekiel is told to inscribe on it somehow so that people would know that this is Jerusalem. Remember, all these people are thinking, if maybe Jerusalem will stand, like we've been taken captive, but maybe Jerusalem will stand. And God says, this is what I want you to do, Ezekiel. Make a model of Jerusalem. And what I then I want you to do is I want you to uh, make sure they know what it is. And so you can imagine Ezekiel, and Ezekiel's been, he's been told to go to his house, so he's somewhere out in front of his house in this refugee camp by the Kabar Canal, this irrigation ditch. He's in a refugee camp, and he's got this brick, and now he's making walls on it, and he's making, he's making these different quarters, and here's the temple, and here's all these things, and he's kind of drawing on it, and making a map, or writing Jerusalem on it somehow so that people know it's that. And they're like, oh, it's Jerusalem, it's Jerusalem. And now, maybe a couple days later, you come back, and Ezekiel has built this little catapult. Boop! And he's building little siege ramps up against it. He's got these little sticks, and he's got these Babylonians going, boom, boom. Like, he's, he's laying siege to this brick in front of his house. Put siege works against it, build a siege wall, cast up a mound against it, set camps against it, plant battering rams against it. So he's making this, like, model in his front yard. And all these people, all these, 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 uh, these folks who have been captive from Israel are now down there, and they're watching him do all this theater in front of this and playing in the sand, in the mud, whatever. And then he says, take an iron griddle. I said in the, when I read this at, uh, um, when, we were, when we were warming up, when we were doing our, uh, what, what do we call it, stage check. I read this as an iron girdle. It's not an iron girdle, okay? Take an iron griddle. Take an iron griddle. And this is what he says. Place it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it, for this is a sign for the house of Israel. And so here's what we have. We've got Ezekiel, and we're going to find out later on he gets bound, and he's laying down. He's supposed to lay down on his side, but he's supposed to take this griddle and put it against the, the wall of the city, and he's supposed to lay siege to it and put it, so he's got this big model set up around it. He's laying down, and he's tied up. By the way, he's tied up. I, I don't know if we can do this. He's tied up, and he's got this griddle in front of him. So this is, and this is what he's doing. He does this for 390 days. 390 days. Let's keep, look, keep looking. So make a brick. Lie down on your left side. This is verse 4. Lie down on your left side. Place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. Now, what's he doing with this? So he's got, he's got this, this scale model of Jerusalem. He's got the iron wall, okay, to, to show that, they're, that even, and at this point, this is one of the things that we're going to get to. The, the iron wall, like the Babylonians are clear. He's got the scale model of the Babylonians all around it. But what's the iron griddle for? The iron griddle is there because there is an invisible enemy that they don't know about. 
and that's God. That all the people in that city that are crying out to God, it's not getting through. The time for repentance has passed. And so Ezekiel is to lay down and to bind himself like the lamb and the ram on the day of atonement and to lie down on his side and to bear the punishment. And so Ezekiel takes himself and probably what he does is he probably ties his feet and his hands together like this and he lies down. Okay, there we go. I was wondering how this was going to go. And he lies down like this. And this is what he does for part of the day for 390 days. Now, I was going to preach the whole sermon like this, but I'm not. Okay, but you guys get the idea, okay? You guys get the idea that here he is doing this theater, showing how, what is, what is happening here. Lie down on your, on your time. So he's tied up, he's bearing the punishment, which reminds of this idea of the, the lamb or the ram on the day of atonement. And over a year, Ezekiel will lay on his side, tied up in front of a scale model of Jerusalem with an iron pan between him and it, doing this, eating bread cooked over poop. Verse 9. And you take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, emmer, put them into a single vessel, and make bread from them. Now, um, there is actually a bread on the market called Ezekiel bread, right? And unfortunately, it misses the point of what Ezekiel bread is supposed to be. Like Ezekiel bread, and if you get it, it tastes pretty good. Like it's, it's all right. Ezekiel bread, what he's describing here is supposed to be horrible. Because, well, first of all, they don't, I don't think they cook the Ezekiel bread that you might buy at the store over poop. Okay, that might be a game changer with everybody. But the point of this is why so many ingredients in this? Why so many ingredients? Because Ezekiel is trying to show what life will be like when you are in Jerusalem under siege from the Babylonians with no help from God. There won't be enough grain of any one type to cook bread. If you want to make wheat bread, there's not enough wheat to make one wheat loaf. So you've got to get all these different kinds. You've got to scavenge whatever you can. And it won't just be grains. You've got to use beans and lentils and all these other things. You've got to put them in and grind them up. And you've got to make this bread. And there's also not going to be enough fuel to cook with. And this is where it gets, it's disgusting. That you can't cut down a tree. You're inside a city. And so the only thing to cook over is human poop. It's to show the desperation. And the food that you're going to eat is going to be rationed out. You've got to weigh it. You only get a certain amount of it. It's to show scarcity and rationing. Ezekiel does bargain with God, and he gets away from the human poop. But he gets cow poop instead. Is poop good? I mean, ESV says dung. I thought poop would be a better way to put it. I mean, that's what the Bible Project did. Remember what the Bible Project did? So, okay. Maybe that's the last time I'll say poop this morning. Okay. All right. But all this is to say is to show scarcity, that there's scarcity. And if you look in Ezekiel 5, 5 1, and you, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor. Now, there was no sword in the kitchen. So we're, we'll have to do with the cleaver. And I'm not going to shave with it. 
Okay, I just know, but thank, thank you, Jackie. You're like, hey, this is going to be awesome, everybody. Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. But that's what Ezekiel did. He takes a sword, and here's the thing. Shaving your hair, shaving your hair, your facial hair, and your head hair is a sign, if you do it by yourself, it's a sign of self-humbling. We see among Jews when they're taking a vow, like the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, he takes a vow, so he shaves his head. It's a sign, it's a sign to show self-humbling in the presence of God that you will submit to God. But when someone else shaves your hair, it's a sign of humiliation. It's a sign of being conquered. And when someone else does, not with a cleaver, but with a sword, when someone else does it with a sword, it's to show that you are going to be humiliated by another army. I never thought I would preach with a cleaver in my hand. I mean, this is like, this is like Halloween, right? I, I, anyway, all right. No pictures. We're going to get rid of that for right now. Okay, but that's, that's the idea, that you will not be able, you're not doing this to yourself. Another person is going to humble you, is going to humiliate you. And then it says, a third part of your hair, so your hair, you're going to be humiliated, and your hair is going to represent the people of Israel. And what we're going to do is a third of that hair, you're going to burn in the fire. So you're going to take a third of your hair, you're going to put it on your brick, and you're going to set it on fire. Now, I did not bring matches, okay? I know. And it would have been awesome, but I don't know, like, what, anyway, that would have been, I, don't, I like my job, okay? That's all I want to say about that. A third, a third it says, a third will be burned in the city when the siege is completed. A third you shall take and strike with a sword all around the city. So the other third, Ezekiel takes out, by the way, he weighs all this, then he throws it down around the city and he's like chopping it all up around the city. I don't want this near me. And then it says, a third part you shall scatter to the wind. So a third are going to die from the, from the siege itself and the, the, uh, the, the rationing and the starvation that goes on during that time. Another third, when the siege, when they get into the city, they're going to die by the sword. And then another third are just going to be scattered, diaspora. And to this day, even the Jewish diaspora is the scattering of, pe of the people of God all over the globe. The diaspora, diaspora Judaism. And then it says in 5.3, From these you shall take a small number, and you shall bind them in the skirts of your robe. Now, everything up to this point has been judgment and gloom and woe. This is the one act of grace. One little bit of hair. One little bitty bit. God is going to take and he's going to place in, the, in, the, in his robe, in the pocket of his robe. The pocket of the robe in Hebrew culture was the place of covering, the place of comfort. When, when you wanted to marry someone, you found the woman you wanted to marry, you would take your robe and you would place it over her as an act of kindness, compassion, protection to show, I will take care of you. And what God is doing, what Ezekiel is showing, is that God has said, look, all of the people of Israel, a third are going to die in the siege. A third are going to get killed by the sword. A third are going to get scattered, but there's a remnant. There's a small number that I am going to preserve. Man, it is, it is like a flicker of a candle in a sea of darkness. 
You shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe, a sign of safekeeping. God will preserve the remnant. In 5.13, which we didn't read, but I'll read for you. Thus shall my anger spend itself. I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Man. I mean, this is a lot of stuff. This is a lot of bad news. This is a lot of bad news. And Ezekiel, just give you, like, you have that one little flickering candle, that one little flickering candle of grace in the middle of the woe. And Ezekiel is going to, it's going to be woe after woe after woe until we get to chapter 33 when somebody comes and says Jerusalem has fallen and then Ezekiel will be, then God will unmute Ezekiel and Ezekiel will then preach hope. But that's 33 chapters later. Now when you think about all this, the cleaver and the, the binding and the brick, what is the scariest part? What is the scariest part? I mean, think about it. I mean, is it, is it the sword that an invading army is going to come in and just start stabbing and killing and cutting off limbs, which would be horrible? Is it the siege? Is it the starvation? Is it the rationing of food? Is it the humiliation, the shaving of the beard and the head? Is it the poop? I mean, I said I wasn't going to say poop again. But is it just the grossness, the overall, this is how we're going to live in this filth? And I want to put forth that the scariest part of this whole thing is this. The iron griddle. Now for me, as I was thinking this week, look, there are a lot of things that could come in my life. Sickness, and we know people that have entered into, into sickness, and many of you have spent nights in the hospital and wondered if you were going to make it out for the next day. And many of you have experienced loss or suffering or, or losing someone you love or even the idea that your health is not what you want it to be or you've experienced that you've had lack and you've had scarcity. You didn't know what was going to happen, where the next check was going to come from. You didn't know what was going to happen. And I feel like in my own life, okay, I feel like if I steadied myself, I could, I could make it. The one thing I don't think that I could do is if I knew that every time I prayed, every time I called out to God, I don't think I could make it. This is the scariest thing. There's a capacity in humanity to withstand some of the most horrible losses and atrocities in our world. And you talk to people who have survived those losses. And they will tell you the worst thing would be to lose hope. And when we look at this, the scariest thing of what, he, what Ezekiel did was he said that between you and God will be an iron wall. And he will not hear your prayer. We don't get to choose where we're born in the story. But we were born into the story at a point where there was a man sent by God 
who chose to put himself on the other side of the pan, the other side of the griddle, the other side of this, that when Jesus hung on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we sing in our, we sing in our hymns that the Father turned his face away. And one of the reasons why one of the reasons why that happened was because there's only one other person that doesn't like the pan as much as we are afraid of the pan. And that's God himself. God never wanted to put another one of these between him and his people. And so what he did was he said, I'm going to send my son. And just like Ezekiel laid to bear the burden of the people, I'm going to send my son to bear the burden of the people. He's going to be the sacrifice on the day of atonement. I'm going to put, between he and I, I'm going to put the pan so that I don't have to put it in between any other of my people and myself. I will bear the cost. I will bear the burden. We don't get to decide where we're born into the story. And if we were born into the story where Ezekiel was, then our faithfulness would look as, as much as Ezekiel's faithfulness. And maybe we would have turned, but we would have still also paid the price. But we have been born on this side of the cross. We have been born in this part of the story where God has said, I don't want to put an iron wall between any of my people. I want my people to come to me, and I want them to be my people, and I will be their God. That's the shorthand version of the covenant. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And I will make it so that there will no longer, there will never again be a tipping point of my wrath toward my people. One day when, when Jesus comes back, when he returns, yes, there will be, there will be an over-tipping of his wrath, but not towards his people, of those who have rebelled against him. But right now, Jesus has made a way so that when you call to God, he will hear your prayer. And I, there have been times where I felt like, man, I have been praying to God and it is just going nowhere, or I just feel like maybe there is this iron wall. And I have to remind myself, no, that's not true. That is not true. Never again will there be an iron wall. And I don't care what you ever do. I don't care what anybody ever does to you. There will never again be an iron wall between you and God. He has made it that way so that wherever you are, however you are experiencing life, whatever you have done, whatever has been done to you, you will cry out to God. He will hear and he will answer. Because Jesus has paid the price. Never again. We're reading about the low point in the story, the lowest point in the story. There's no other prophet. Ezekiel is the last prophet of doom. He's also the first prophet of hope. He's the first one to proclaim hope. And I think if Ezekiel, if Ezekiel could see into the future, he would say, this will, we will, God will make it so he never has to do this again. We've experienced the lowest, and now here we, we're, we're, looking, we're looking forward now to Messiah. And we just happen to be in a place where we can have God's word, and we can know that God has made a way that when you cry out, and I can tell you with assurance, when you cry out wherever you're at, God will hear your prayer because God has made a way for that to happen.
And again, I, wherever you're at today, maybe, you, maybe you're here and you're like, look, I just need to be reminded that God is hearing my prayers. And if, if you are, that, you're, not, you're not alone. There are plenty of people who, just, who, who need to know that God is on their side. God will hear your prayer and God will act on your behalf. Why will he do it? Because that's who he is. He's your father. He's entered into a covenant with you. And he loves you deeply. And maybe you're here this morning and you're like, look, I've never, I've never ever expressed faith in Jesus. Somebody else took me, brought me here. I don't know how, even how I got here. I, but God seems to have a reason for me being here this morning. And that reason is probably the idea that God wants a relationship with you. God does not want to put an iron wall between you and him. God wants has a plan for your life, and God wants to love you, and God wants to hear your prayer, and the way that happens is by means of faith in Jesus, through faith in Jesus. We put our faith, we put our trust in Jesus, and when we do that, the iron, not girdle, horrible, the iron griddle, the iron wall is removed. Jesus took it so that we didn't have to. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning we come to worship, we come to give our lives to you, we come to be reminded, Father, that you do not want distance between us. You do not want distance between you and us. You do not want stumbling blocks or impediments between you and us, that you will take and you will crush everything that stands between your love and us. Father, we simply want to say, as your people, as people who have put their trust in Jesus, have put their faith in Jesus, that we want to lean into that and know you as you are. You are our Father. You love us deeply. Father, help us this week. Just remind us that our prayers ascend to you. You hear them and you want to act on our behalf. Father, we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.